0: Well, if you haven't been with us, we have been in this series called 10. You can see the banners up here. We're studying the Ten Commandments, and today we come to number six. One of the first weeks that we started looking at the Ten Commandments, we uh, had a little help from Pastor Brian and some of the kids in our church, ways to think about our ten fingers and how we use them to remember the Ten Commandments. Because you see, friends, what we're trying to do is, a lot of people in the United States say they believe in the Ten Commandments, but like many of us, we don't know them. And we can't be deeply influenced by that which we don't know. So we want to get better acquainted and familiar with the Ten Commandments. So anyway, I found this helpful and some of you have said you have too. I've heard actually of you telling and teaching this to other people and that's completely legal. But here it is, we're gonna talk about the first six today. For your first finger, just one finger now, if you hold it up, it means one God, no other gods, okay, first commandment. Second commandment, you take your two fingers and cross them like an X, no idols. You shall not make for yourself idols. And the third, you take your three fingers and you put it on your lips, which means you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You should not take the name of the Lord in vain. For the fourth commandment about the Sabbath, you take your four fingers and put it on your arm, which we use to work, right? And that is honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath. For five fingers, we did this last week, but if you start low with all five fingers and just raise it high, it's honor your parents. Honor your parents through every age and stage of your life. And today we come to the sixth commandment, which if you just take your one index finger and you point it into your hand, your palm of five fingers, it's you shall not murder. You shall not murder. And so when we think about that today, we're going to actually look at this command. And uh, I want to just ask you if you would, before we look at this commandment, to turn uh, to the back of your notes instead of the front of your notes. How's that? And we're gonna look at this first. We've been reviewing this. I don't know if you realize this, but the 10 commandments are in the order they are for a reason. And the first four commandments, as we see there, teach us how we're to relate properly to God. And so we can't have a healthy relationship with other people if we don't first relate well to God. But notice the last six teach us how we're to relate to others. And we're in that section now, and we're seeing how they're related how our relationship with God will always affect how we treat other people. So if you would, down at the bottom there, there's two lines. This has been the sentence for our series in the Ten Commandments. Let's read it out loud together. God's boundary lines are a gift, and honoring them leads to freedom. And I hope you're going to see that again today with the Sixth Commandment. But before I say anything else about the Sixth Commandment, I need to tell you something, and that is, that I should not be teaching this one because I have broken the sixth commandment, and uh, I I am aware of God's grace. I'm going to tell you later how I've done that, but for years I remember that I remember thinking to myself, "Well, at least I haven't broken the ten, you know, the sixth commandment." And it's almost like a reverse way of saying how righteous I was. Look at what I haven't done instead of what I have done. But what I hope you'll see today is that this Sixth Commandment is just four words. In fact, you want to read it with me there on the notes there in the gray box. You shall not murder. And uh, in the Hebrew language that it's written, it's only two words, no murder. It's like God's saying, mark this boundary line no murder. I don't want any murder. So you go, whoa, wow. God must care about something. And a lot of us have always heard it in the negative. But what what we're learning is these boundary lines that God gives aren't just cavalier things he throws out. They're protecting something. What are they protecting? They're protecting human life. And so this sixth commandment As we've already entitled it, it's called Honor Human Life. And many of us, again, we we think to ourselves, as long as we have not physically killed somebody, that we have kept the Sixth Commandment. But really, we may have technically kept some of the Sixth Commandment, but we have not understood the spirit and the heart of the Sixth Commandment or the heart of God, if that's how we think. And so here's what I hope happens during this message today and into the days to come this coming week is if you're looking at your notes, here's what I think the heart of the Sixth Commandment is saying. And here's what God wants us to know. Here's what he says. Feel the weight of your neighbor's worth. Feel the weight of your neighbor's worth. When you hear no murder, I want you to realize that what I'm protecting is the value, the worth of your neighbor and you. And I want you to feel that as you walk through every day, and you begin to not feel that anymore, and it's only a matter of time till murders start taking place. So feel the weight of. We learned last week that the word honor means to give weight to, to take seriously, to understand more deeply the value, the weight of your neighbor's worth. And that's really what's behind here. We're going to see it. And so I want to just pray, and what I'm going to do is I want you to see that what's helped me this week is to understand more about the sixth commandment than might first be obvious. Have you noticed, by the way, with each one of these commandments, that we walk in and we go, I think I understand that one pretty good. And we walk out going, oh, wow, there's so much more to that than I thought. And what I hope is that by understanding number six better, then what we're also going to do is we're going to see what Jesus says on number six. And then we're gonna talk about how to practice it. And I am filled with so much hope today because although I have broken the sixth commandment, I have found mercy. And because I have found mercy, I can pass it on to you and we can celebrate and worship him today. So let's pray before we look at this passage. Now, Lord, thank you for every person that's gathered in this room. I pray that while I'm preaching, I might feel the weight of every person in this room's worth, That I might understand that better and that it might change the way I live. And I pray that as we understand this better as a church and we make our way into the community this afternoon and this week, I pray that it'll change the way we live. And I pray we'll walk out of here thinking to ourselves, oh my goodness, are God's boundary lines a gift? lead to freedom glorify yourself O oh lord in your name we pray amen okay i want to ask you to turn in, not in the old testament this time but to the new testament and i want you to mark the place because we'll come back to it and i want you to turn to matthew 5 verses 21 through 24 <clears throat> if you don't have a bible we say this every sunday we'd love for you to have a bible We have copies there in the seat racks in front of you. I think they say the word NIV at the bottom of them. You can just pull it out. It's on page 678. And if you don't have a Bible, take it home. We'll replace it. We just want every person to be able to have a copy of the Word of God. And so as we look at this together today, Matthew 5, 21 through 24 is where we're going to make our way to uh, as we see what Jesus says. But I want to start with just unpacking what it says in the Old Testament. Okay? So just so we remember again what the sixth commandment is, do you mind reading it again with me in that first gray box? You shall not murder, okay? Now, what is is behind all this? The very first thing I want you to see is that when God talks about murder in the Old Testament, he wants us to be clear on what he's thinking. And so this first sentence there in the notes on understanding number six is that God makes every human being in his image. God makes every human being in his image. I want you to say something right up here. Even atheists believe people are valuable. The difference is what the source of that value is. And what we have learned in the Judeo-Christian background is that God says people are valuable because I made them and I made them in my likeness, in my image. This is what separates us from the rest of creation that also is glorious, but we have a different kind of glory. That means that you and I have been created in the image of God. Now again, I know not everyone believes this, but if you're gonna understand the heart behind God's command, you're gonna have to understand what he has in his mind. And so, the very first chapter of Genesis, we see how when God's creating the world, he says, and let us make man in our image. Notice, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are already busy at work. Let us make man in our image. And so they created man, male and female, he created them in his image. And that means that when you and I have his image, that means we have his likeness, that means that we have a measure of value. I know that if we were to crack open everybody's chest and look inside, we wouldn't see made by God for God, but it's still true. You have never, ever locked eyes with someone that wasn't made in the image of God. That is a weighty comment right there. And when you and I begin to be gripped by that, when we begin to understand it, then we understand why he says, no murder. You can't go around killing people in the image of God. They matter. And when you kill people in the image of God, you are offending and violating me and my greatness. You cannot do that. I alone have the authority to decide who takes a life. I give life and I take life. I alone am God. Now notice Genesis 9, 5 and 6 here on the screen talks about this idea. He says, and I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. That means there's a huge responsibility, friends, for how we treat people. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands for God made human beings in his own hands image. What do we mean when we say image? Uh, C.S. Lewis was just profound about this. He says, you've never met an ordinary human being. You have no idea what you're doing when you look at somebody. They're more glorious than you can ever imagine and someday you're going to see that more clearly he says. But in a way, some people have said that, that our image that we were created with is like a mirror We actually reflect back like the moon does the sun. We reflect the greatness and glory of God. We actually share in his glory in that way. But the Bible tells us by chapter three of the Bible that the fall of sin had already taken place, not just for Adam and Eve, but it's been repeated by every person in human history since you and me included. And that when sin entered the world, that mirror became dirty and cracked and broken And what sin does is rather than turning towards the sun, we turn away from it and face darkness. And now all of a sudden, that mirror no longer reflects the greatness it was meant to reflect. It still can sometimes reflect in part, but nowhere near what it was meant to. That likeness is nowhere as clear as it was meant to be. And what's interesting is, is that even a broken mirror like that still has a certain amount of glory. There's still an ability to be able to see, wow, I can see what it was created to be, even though it's not that anymore. Some of you have been to Europe and you've seen the ruins there and you can sometimes stand in those famous ruins and you go, wow, this is ruined. But you also go, this, I can still see some of its magnificence. I can still make out what was originally intended, what it used to be, what it could be. We can see that. And when you and I interact with people, we definitely interact with fallen people and we are one ourselves, but we are made in the image of God. And God says, therefore, feel the weight of your neighbor's worth. Second thing is, let's talk about what killing is. Some of you, you grew up and you learned the 10 commandments or at least you learned the sixth commandment and you learned it this way. Thou shalt not what? Kill. Now, nothing wrong with that. God doesn't like killing. The problem is is it leads to a certain amount of confusion because the word chosen here is not just any word for kill it is a very specific word it is the word that carries the idea of murder and if you're following along in the notes what i hope you'll see is that the idea here is the intentional deliberate premeditated unlawful killing or ending of a human being that murder is the intentional, deliberate, premeditated, unlawful, unauthorized killing of a human being. One person has said this, to summarize what the sixth commandment forbids, is the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. It applies to murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, negligent homicide resulting from recklessness and carelessness. Perhaps the best translation is you shall not kill unlawfully so again if you're thinking about all this with me notice that God says that some killing is deliberate and some is accidental Do you know some of the people that live with some of the most grief are those that have accidentally hit someone and they were killed or that accidentally did something that they wish they could take back oh they wish they could take back and I'm speaking right now and I'm praying that you will know that there is a God in heaven that can forgive and cleanse your guilt if you feel like you have offended and done something. But here's the thing. There are a number of examples in the Bible where their killing is sometimes justifiable and even necessary. A Couple weeks ago after a service, a man came up to me and said, "Uh, who's gonna be speaking on the sixth commandment? I said, I will be. He said, could you help those of us that have served in the military? that had to kill someone while defending our country. Would you please make it clear that that is not what God's talking about in the Sixth Commandment? I said, oh, I will. He said, it's taken me many years to finally come to peace, because when you do something like that to a human being, even if they're your enemy, you don't get over that easily. And he was verifying what I told you earlier. When you kill someone, they are made in the image of God. And it has so much gravity. And he felt the weight of that. But he also needs to be set free from undue guilt because God says that there are some things that are definitely covered in this. Not only unintentional, but notice what it also means if you're following along. It doesn't mean war. It doesn't mean capital punishment. It doesn't mean when people are killed, when law and order is being upheld and it doesn't mean self-defense. In the passages, both chapters, both before and after Exodus 20, God makes room for the death penalty, fighting in war. Again, God doesn't love that. We're gonna see later, God delights in the death of no one, Ezekiel 18, 32. But law and order, there were some men in the last service here, there's men and women in our church. You uphold law and order. We need to walk around with respect for people that every day are willing to put their life on the line from people that don't feel the weight of them or other people. And they sometimes have had to defend people in the line of duty, and it is a serious responsibility. But also, some of you, I know a person talked to me earlier this week. He said, I once had to kill someone in order to protect other lives in self-defense. Does that mean that I committed the sixth command? And what I want you to hear this morning is, no, it does not. These things must never, I know the death penalty is a controversial thing even among Christians because people will say, at what point do we determine that a life is no longer redeemable by God? But friends, the Bible also says that there is at least room for it if sometimes it will produce a deterrent or it will actually protect more lives. And these are weighty decisions that we must always take seriously. But notice what this commandment also is talking about. If you're following along, notice that what God wants us to see very clearly is that he wants us to value disabled people, whether they're mentally or physically disabled or deformed or handicapped. He wants us to value the aged, the unborn, and ourselves. He wants us to value the disabled, the aged, the unborn, and ourselves. There's so much more I could talk about here, but let me just say this, that once a nation, once a culture, once a family, once a group of people determines that people no longer have the weight of worth that God says they do, then people become expendable. And what has happened in our culture, and some of you have had to go through the agony of this, is that some of you know now with ultrasound technology and other things is that parents are being introduced to the idea that when they become pregnant, if that child has a deformity, if that child has some kind of noticeable handicap, the counsel more and more often in our culture is you need to get rid of that. And I've sat with couples who agonized. When I was in Iowa, there was a couple. This lady worked with mentally handicapped people all day long. She found out she was pregnant. They came and they said, we got a tough decision to make. We're being counseled to terminate this pregnancy. And I know enough about what it's going to mean for me if I have a mentally handicapped child. I'm not going to this blind. What do we do? We talked honestly and we prayed, and they decided to make a courageous decision to have this child knowingly. This child has been one of the greatest blessings in their lives, and this little girl became a woman who has lifted up more people. But they had a tough choice to make. But they were, were living in a culture where we're more and more okay with that. The aged, the youth culture of today basically says after a certain point, especially if they have Alzheimer's, they're not useful anymore. Friends, the Bible says we need to show respect for the aged. We need to rise in their presence. We need to understand they have a weight of worth even after they're useful. And then there's the unborn. And in a room this size, I want to pick my words carefully. After the last service, a lady came up to me and said, I had an abortion when I was 18 years old. There's not a day that's gone by in the last 40 years that I haven't thought about a child every day, even though I have two of my own. We talked about God's forgiveness, and I was able to pray with her and tell her that God is a God that also sets boundary lines, but he also is a God of mercy. And I know that some people believe it's a choice, that it's just tissue, but according to Psalm 139, at the moment of conception, The weight of the worth of a human being has begun. Let me just read this, Psalm 139. David was marveling. He said, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together, God, in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you hear him talk about the weight of the worth? Your works are wonderful, God. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now notice this next line. Your eyes saw my what body, friends? Unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And it is because people have understood this that it has caused a lot of people to say, I now realize that this is serious. Now some of you you may have had abortions because you were afraid or you were pressured or it was insisted upon you by a parent or a boyfriend or something like that and friends these are complicated issues. Some of you may have just said I can't handle this right now whatever it might be. But you know what people never talk about? Do you realize that in the last 40 years since abortion was legalized 50 Five million abortions have happened in our country. And God weeps. Because he goes, those people matter to me. And he understands some of the complexities. And a lot of people say, well, what about saving the life of the mother? Most medical doctors will tell you, those situations are so rare, they're so rare, that it's almost a non-issue. But in those cases, that does have to be weighed. And God understands how complex it is. But friends, hear me. If you or someone you love has gone through this, there is emotional baggage that goes with that, that God also cares about you. And he can forgive, and he wants to forgive, and he wants to cleanse, and he wants to help our nation once again value what has not been valued. And we need to just... Be mindful of that. And we need to be people that don't just say, that's wrong. We need to say, what can I do to help you feel the weight of this person and carry it with you? My parents-in-law for 10 years housed unwed mothers. So those ladies could weigh out whether they should adopt or have that child, but go full term. They didn't just talk about it. They felt the weight of that, and it moved them to do something. And God may move some of you to do the same. And I'm thankful that he has. But one more, and that is, we're not meant to devalue ourselves, our own lives. This is about suicide. Today, mercy killing, assisted suicide, euthanasia, and even suicide is becoming more common. This is the second greatest killer among our teenagers in our nation right now. It is unbelievable. And unfortunately, suicide is being glorified. Death is being glorified in our culture. And we need to just be mindful of that. But here's what you need to know. You and I do not have the right to take our lives. That is God's territory. And we need to be loving towards people. I'll tell you what, I've gone through friends. I had lost a friend to suicide. He got into a funk over a broken relationship and he decided to do something permanent about it. And I know that his family would tell you that different than other kinds of death, it's kind of like a fish hook. You cannot pull it out without ripping all kinds of things open in a person. It is an incredibly difficult thing when people get mentally ill, when people ask Rick and Kay Warren, when you get in these situations, this is complex, but we need to at least know God's boundary lines are clear. Value, value even yourself, because you're made in the image of God. And weigh that out carefully and get help if you need to. One more thing I want you to see in this section, though, is that God hates, and I mean the word hate, hates abuse, violence, or the enjoying of it. God hates abuse, violence, and the enjoying of it. Some of you right now are in an abusive marriage, an abusive situation And you have gotten to the place where the reason you stay in it is because you don't believe you matter. That you may even deserve this. And I want to tell you that's a lie from the pit of hell. You matter. And if you're in an abusive situation, you need to cry out for help. You need to come to somebody. We will do whatever we can to help you, but you need to get out of that abusive relationship. I've heard pastors that have told people, you just have to accept that as the will of God and let them keep beating you. Friends, that is not true. And I want to say to those of you that may be abusers, When is it going to stop? When are you going to fear the Lord enough to honor God's boundary line and understand that you too matter to God and he can forgive you and he can cleanse you and he can give you a different spirit? A lot of times hurt people hurt people. And God wants to break that cycle. He hates violence. Because anytime violence is going on, that means somebody's getting pounded. That's made in the image of God. And it is serious business. And I am sorry if I'm getting worked up about this in a way that may throw you off. Please understand, God hates this. We don't worship it often enough a God who gets angry about things, but certain things because of his love make him angry. And this makes him angry but angry because he wants to show mercy, and it's difficult when people remain proud or self-protective. Let me just read something years ago that I read that's never I've never forgotten, and I want you to know this was written years ago before video games reached the level that they are now, so think of that too. But here's what one pastor wrote. I'm afraid that we as a society are becoming accustomed to interpersonal violence instead of being radically revolted by it. How is it that we cheer on hockey players who beat each other's face in and leave rinks disappointed if there isn't bloodshed? How is it that we tune into television shows knowing in advance by the teasers that's all it's going to be is violence and bloodletting? Let me read you something about movies these days. A person writes, Today a new breed of horror films are on the rise. Slasher or slice and dice films. These films combine themes of decapitation, mutilation, dismemberment, cannibalism, the occult, rape, and explicit sex to entertain their viewers. Certainly the most disturbing trend of all is the fascination with movies depicting actual death scenes. The author says there are some serious consequences of of viewing these kind of movies. One is desensitization. If you or your child is enjoying, smiling, or being entertained at the sight of what should make him or her cry. He or she is already well on the way to acute desensitization. The second consequence is unwanted memories. Some studies suggest that everything we experience is recorded in our brain, seldom to be forgotten. It is possible that children who choose to view slasher horror films will be unable to free themselves from unwanted memories. And I want to say to every adult in this place, and especially every parent, sometime along the line we've got to demonstrate some leadership. We've got to draw some lines and stick by them and say to our kids that we love them too much to have their minds warped by that kind of violence and that kind of sin. How could any sensitive-hearted Christian get any level of entertainment or joy out of seeing people made in the image of God die, sliced and diced? Friends, it's sick. Sometimes Christians have to perform a kind of spiritual surgery where we say, God, I want to cut that out of my life forever. Please help me. And I would challenge every person in this place to perform surgery on being party to any kind of physical violence that is inconsistent with the heart of the loving God. And that last sentence is what I want to build on next. Many of us say that we have not broken the sixth commandment because we have never physically ended someone's life. And that is certainly the technical understanding of the Sixth Commandment. But have you ever been party to someone being destroyed? I want to ask you to think with me for the next couple minutes about something. When you think of one of the worst mass killers that's ever lived, what's one of the first names that comes to your mind? Most people would say Hitler, Adolf Hitler. Now I want you to think about this with me. How many people did Adolf Hitler kill himself directly? Maybe none. We have no record of him actually killing people that I know of, and if we do, it's very few. But during his leadership, over 6 million Jews, plus hundreds of thousands of other disabled, crippled, and mentally ill people were killed by his regime. How did he do that? He took a nation that was broken in Germany and he got them angry and he got them desensitized and he got them devaluing a group of people called the Jewish people who he said were not of a pure race, the Aryan race, and therefore they had been pushing other people down because they were always excelling and therefore we need to get rid of them. And by devaluing them, he was able to destroy them because when you devalue a person, now they're expendable. Now you no longer feel the weight of who they are. And so during his regime, millions, millions of people went to their deaths who bore the image of God. And God was sick about that. And even some of the hardest people I know are sickened by that. And so we need to feel the weight of that. I've done some reading about serial killers. Some of you know that Ted Bundy, 25 years ago, was executed in our country. As far as we know, he he was not charged for all these, but he said he killed over, he raped and killed over 85 women. When asked why, he said when he was in a university class, his philosophy professor helped him understand that there are no absolute boundary lines, that everything we decide is a value judgment. Therefore, there was actually a recording when he was killing a woman. And he told her he was about to kill her. And she said, why? No, do something. My family will do. And he says, oh, you need to understand. She says, why would you want to take away my freedom, my life like that? He says, your freedom. You're helping my freedom by letting me rape and kill you. And he said that he understood that if a person is not created in the image of God then if God hasn't created people, friends, we're not accountable. There's no accountability. And also people are just material. If you read a book called Devil in the White City, you'll read about a guy named H.H. Holmes that was a serial killer. You know what people became to him? Material. And we live in a materialistic society that does not believe in the supernatural God. And because of that, we have created a situation that devalues people from this unbelievable weight that God says people have. And we need to understand that it's only a step away once you devalue someone from destroying them. It now is open game. And that stuff is happening in our culture more and more and more. And the only way it's gonna change is if we recover the sense of what God says. So now Jesus comes in and he amps it up even higher. And I hope you'll see already that honoring human life means far more than refraining from physical violence. And so if you've got your place marked there, I'm going to come to it in just a second. But while Jesus was talking here on earth, he says, I want to make sure I get something absolutely clear. He says, you need to know something about the evil one and you need to know something about me. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see. He said, the evil one comes to devalue and destroy people. The evil one comes to devalue or redefine and destroy people. Look up here at the screen, if you would, at John 8, 44. Here's what he was saying one day to a group of people that were plotting to kill him. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth to them. He didn't hold to the truth that people were made in the image of God. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Then he goes on in John 10, verse 10. Look what he says next. The thief, the evil one, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's who he is. That's that's how he thinks. That's how he operates. He wants to ruin everything God has made. He wants to twist it, destroy it, kill. He doesn't care. He doesn't see us as valuable. But he says, but I have come that you may have what, friends? Jesus says, I have come. You may have life and have it. To the full. Which way are you moving? He says, I, I want you to know when I'm working in someone's life, even though people say I killed that person in the name of God, they're crazy. They did not do that in the spirit of Jesus at all. So notice this. Look at this. That murder begins as anger or resentment if you're following along. That murder begins as anger or resentment. Now let's look at this. Verses 21 and 22, I've listed in that second grade box. Let's read it. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. And if you commit murder, you are subject. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. This word anger means this harboring, this kind of slow burn, this kind of looking at them with real resentment or bitterness or distaste. When that kind of stuff's working in your heart, he said, that kind of thing that's working in your heart is murderous at its root. Now, some of us go, wow. He goes on. Let's see what Matthew 5, 21 and 22 says in the New International. Do you mind skipping this screen first and then we'll go to the next verse because that's verse 22. you mind just going to the... There you go. And he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, which is Aramaic, which means nobody, empty headed, is answering to the court and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of where, friends? Oh, my goodness. You know, the word he uses in the Greek here is moros. Anybody recognize where we get an English word from? Anybody ever said, you moron? Okay, woo. And this idea means you're worthless, you're taking up space morally. Wow. Now, if you're following along, Notice this, that devaluing someone with words leads to serious consequences. Devaluing someone with words leads to serious consequences. Have you ever, here again, have you ever looked at someone you were supposed to feel the weight of and said something that actually said, no, you are nobody. You are worthless. I remember even when I was five years old, I began to see this rise up in me. One night, across the yards, my friend and I were trying to call each other the most unbelievable names we could think of. At five, we didn't know many bad words, but we were trying. (laughs) And I saw in my heart a desire to absolutely crush that person or at least put them back in what I thought their place. I did not feel the weight of my neighbor, let me tell you. But notice 1 John, what 3 says here in verse 12 and verse 15. Look what it says. Do not be like Cain. We studied Cain a few weeks ago. Fourth chapter of the Bible, the first murder took place. Who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was filled with resentment for his brother. And he said, let's go out to the field. And he ended him. And God said, his blood cries out to the ground, out of the ground to me, what have you done? Cain. And he even had talked to Cain before that and warned him that you have the power to master this desire to destroy. And then notice what verse 15 says. Let's read this together. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in. him. I told you that I have broken the sixth commandment. Do You understand what I mean? Let me tell you, after I this one line, I want to just tell you that story. If you're following along, here's the big idea. Jesus says, if you love the Lord, value your neighbor as he does. If you love the Lord, if you have no other gods before you and he's first in your life, you will look at, you will value, you will treat your neighbor more as he does. Even unbelievers know the story of the Good Samaritan. How a man got beat up by robbers who didn't value his life, robbed him, left him for dead, and then two religious people on the way to church saw him there, and they decided to go on the other side of the street. But then a foreigner, a Samaritan, comes along. He sees them, and it says, but he had compassion on him. He felt the weight of this guy, his worth. He reached down, he took him, and he cared for him. And Jesus was telling that story, by the way, because someone in the religious group had said, I know we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, but who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells the story, and here's how Jesus ends the story. Who was a neighbor? And the guy said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise, and you will understand God's heart. Love your neighbor as yourself is underneath all this. When I was in 5th grade, this is hard for me to tell you, because it's, it's shameful. When I was in 5th grade, I murdered a man named Mike. He was a very unattractive guy, in my opinion. And many other of my classmates thought so too. And so we decided to pick on him. I told a number of jokes in class that got a lot of laughs at his expense. I, get, I got points using Mike. And I wish that was where it stopped. That in itself endangers me to the hell of fire. But one day on the way home to school, since we walked the same route, I and a couple of my buddies decided to kick Mike in the backside and call him every possible name we could think of to belittle him for a couple blocks. I went home, and I didn't think about it. Six or seven years later, or excuse me, four or five years later, I met Jesus Christ. I came to the place where I realized that I really was a sinner capable of all kinds of terrible things, both with my mouth and with my life, using people. And I trusted Christ and I found amazing grace because of what he'd done on the cross. And one morning, weeks later, I was praying and the Lord, across the ticker of my mind, reminded me of Mike. We were in high school now. I hadn't seen Mike for a while, but I knew he was in some different hallways if I looked for him. So I found Mike, and he said, I want you to go to Mike, and I want you to make it right. So I went to Mike, and I said, Mike, do you remember what happened in fifth grade? I remember this so vividly. He didn't even say anything, he just goes, I said, Mike, I recently became a Christian. And God showed me that what I did to you back there was terribly wrong. I did not treat you as he wanted me to treat you. And I know that I broke some pieces inside of you by doing what I did. And I know that those consequences don't get easily undone. And I don't know if you could ever find in your heart to forgive me, but I just want you to know I'm really wrong. And he said, I'll forgive you. And even before he said that, I was already seeing what I had never noticed before, that this person in front of me was valuable, that he had feelings like I had, that he had thoughts like I had, that he had hopes like I had, and I had reduced him. I had devalued him, and I destroyed him. But I found mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, and I began to reverse what I would begun to do. And now... I will tell you that there's not a day that goes by that when someone's standing in front of me, I try and ask God to help me realize who I'm standing in front of and to take them seriously. And I don't always do it. I don't always pull it off. But I want to live more with that. I want to feel the weight of my neighbor's worth. And so Jesus ends this with verses 23 and 24. If you look here on the screen, look what it says. It says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you're in a church service and you're bringing an offering or you're offering something to God and there remember across the ticker of your mind that your brother or sister has something against you, don't just keep worshiping as usual. Don't go on acting like I'm fine with what you did or that you can just worship me and keep that compartmentalized. Leave your gift there in front of the altar first go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. And Jesus says that you and I, when we're worshiping God, he's gonna show us things and he wants us to go and restore or go and reconcile what we've broken. So how do we practice this? Let me just mention two things as we close. First, have you come to the realization like I have that you are guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment and several others, by the way, besides that one, and you realize that you're capable of all kinds of destructive things, if it doesn't come down to a change from Jesus Christ in your life, then you and I need to come to Jesus. And I'll explain why in just a second, but we need to ask Jesus to restore his image in us. Ask Jesus to restore his image in you. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. And He came to earth because we had marred that image. We are broken mirrors. We were not reflecting His glory. And He died for the penalty of our sins, the way that we had destroyed people. We had devalued people. And instead of devaluing us, He valued us. And He came and He died on a cross and He gave His precious blood so that now He could not just forgive and cleanse, but He could put a new spirit in us. He can restore the image that had been marred and now that image can begin to reflect him again. And now we can begin to look at people like he looks at people. And then he wants us to understand. He says feel your neighbor's worth enough to go and restore. Feel your neighbor's worth enough to go and restore. To go and bless. To be in this world where now instead of devaluing and destroying people and being okay with it that now we begin to go What can I bless? What can I lift up? How can I let the glory of God and the weight of this shine into everyone's situation I meet? Even enemies. And Jesus talks about this. And I wonder, is there anybody in this room that needs to go to somebody and reverse what you've been doing? Is there anybody here that can say, I've never devalued a person with my words? Is there any of us? God says, I want to cleanse that. I want to forgive that. But I not only want to do that, I don't want to just take you through a car wash. I want to give you a new spirit. I want to restore the image I made in you so that you can become a person. And so, friends, I'll just tell you, I am so thankful for those of you that care about the unborn and are giving yourself. The Bir Lahai Roy, or whatever kind of situation like that, because you want to be in the restoring image business. You want to help people that need to know grace and mercy and forgiveness. I'm thankful for those of you that care about orphans and foster children. I'm thankful for those of you that care about people in prison. I'm thankful for those of you that care about people in the marketplace that haven't heard the good news that Jesus came to restore the image of God in them, and they have worth and weight. So would you just bow your head with me? Let's just ask God to show us while Kara Lisa plays for a moment. Let's just ask him to show us what he wants us to think about this morning.